You know I'm right. The podcast that uncovers the origin stories of some of the biggest names in sports, media, and entertainment. Nick Durst here along with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, I'm really excited for our guest today. He is the only person to work with Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith, and Jay Mariotti on a regular basis. Uh, he's most well known for being a longtime sports columnist in Colorado. He's worked at various newspapers throughout his career. Um, also, he's a legend, a true living legend. As you and I know, we grew up, one of those shows that you, we used to watch when we were younger around the horn on ESPN, uh, one of the greatest panelists to ever do it, one of the most all-time winningest panel panelists to ever do it, and by our estimation, one of the most entertaining people uh, to have ever been associated with the show and ESPN. So we're so happy to have him on. Thank you for doing this with us. Uh, Woody Page. Woody, welcome. How are you? Nice to see you. Uh, welcome to You Know I'm Right. Hello, Joe and Nick. Uh, when we started Around the Horn, I asked ESPN, I said, who's going to watch this show? And they said, uh, <laughs> and, and uh High school and college kids, and they're right. <laughs> and people in bars, and and you grew up uh, watching it probably after high school or uh, after school or while you were in college. A lot of guys watch it there. So turned out they were absolutely right. Normal people don't watch around the horn or pardon interruption. <laughs> it's got to be crazy people. So. No, we did. Antonio Reality, big Staten Island guy. Uh, I I noticed in my research that uh, you guys are at least I think Nick's in Staten Island, and I went, oh God, another one of those Staten Islanders. Uh, the only time I've been out there, I covered uh, uh, Ground Zero when the uh, mm -hmm. crisis happened, and the newspaper sent me to uh, New York. And they were taking all of the steel and garbage and human remains out to uh, fresh kill. Yeah. And I went out there. And that was probably uh, 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 just a great way to start the show with a serious story. I went out there and I talked to a cop who, would, who uh, actually... Uh, spent time, a lot of time in Colorado and I was wearing Colorado Rockies baseball cap and I said have you recovered anything unusual? He was among the police authorities there that were uh, going through all of the uh, uh, stuff that was being barged out there and the trucks uh, taking it and he said sure we got wallets and we got uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, papers from uh, the buildings and he said uh, I, I got a watch with a, uh, the time on it exactly when the plane hit and I said oh could I see that and he went into a, a god this is a terrible I, I apologize for this but it hit me so now he, he, he goes into a trailer that's a, a cool air conditioned trailer he comes out of the box and he opens the box and there's the watch with the exact time of the crashes and it's on an arm 
How's that to start the program? <laughs> no, it's it's okay. It's uh, hopefully uh, you could come back to New York and visit us someday. Maybe yeah. I'm here. It will be. A so what I uh, that that uh, in my entire career, which spans from uh, the 1960s, the 60 something years that I've been doing, I'm 76 and I started this when I was 16, so that's 61 years, I guess. Uh, I've never had a uh, period of time like the week after 9-11. Uh, uh, now let's talk about fun things. I, I did give you a funny line, I think, about who was going to watch around the horn, and it turned out to be true. And it was. I sent a Nick a thing that I worked with Stephen A. Smith on a show called uh, Dream Job. I don't know if you got a chance to see that, but that was the uh, ESPN's only uh, attempt, I think, to try to do American Idol or reality show or The Voice or something like that. And whoever won that show, we did, uh, I think, four seasons. Whoever won that show uh, got to be. Uh, an anchor person on ESPN, and it, it got a, a, a Mustang convertible and ninety five thousand dollars. And so Stephen A. Smith and I were were uh, judges on that show, and there was a lot of talent that actually came through that uh, guys that are still still on TV. But at one point, we were judging the finalists one season and two things happened. Stephen A. Smith told one of the guys, they were two young men, he said, you know, I gotta tell you the truth. And you have to put this in Stephen A. Smith's voice. Uh at the end of the day, the bottom line is what you bring to the table is just too many cliches. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny joe I, I wanted to bring back dream jobs so i could win and uh, yeah i know um, we need to find nick a uh yeah. so nick, nick does it's like freelance broadcasting so we need to find him a, a good better concrete job here soon so i told i told one of the guys who actually ended up winning i said you were rock solid tonight you were rock solid you 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 managed to get past the mistakes you managed to do the interview great you did it and i said Best performance uh, of the entire season, rock solid. And I turned to the other guy and I said, "You know what? You were rock hard." And the host of the show, who was a late uh, great uh, personality for ESPN, fell on the floor because <laughs> I couldn't think of another word for rock, like rock good or whatever. And it was live. It was live. I worked with ESPN with Stephen A. Smith. I worked with Skip Bayless on First Take, First and Ten. Uh, we started that, and, and uh, anybody that has ever watched Skip, I apologize. And uh, uh, we had we had actually uh, auditioned about uh, three hundred people to be my partner on that morning show. And, yeah, and we had gone through rap artists, uh, former NFL quarterbacks, uh, disc jockeys around the country, and I, I must tell you, I would guess 90% of them were African-Americans because they were 
kind of recreating the pardon interruption dynamic, I guess, the uh, white guy and the black guy. And that was the same period of time as the Olympics in Athens, Greece. And I went to the Olympics and I wanted, uh, I had picked out somebody I wanted to work with. And that was part of my agreement that I could choose my partner. And when I came back, they said, we're going to try Skip Bayless. And I went, really? That's two old white guys. <laughs> that, that's really what you're going for? <laughs> and that actually worked a bit uh, until I think the end of that uh, relationship was we would have meetings in the morning to determine what was going to be on the show that day. We do that for Around the Horn. We'd go through 12, 14 subjects and figure out what are the best subjects. They don't tell us what to say. We just decide on what topics, like you guys do the same thing. You go, uh, what do we want to talk about? And uh, there was a great, uh, funny survey taken by a golf magazine that said 38% uh, of male golfers would give up sex for a year if they could break 80. <laughs> and and uh, the producer said to me, would you give up sex for a year to, to shoot par? And I said, of course I would. I've given, I said, there have been probably 20 years I've had to give up sex for a year. <laughs> they turned to Skip Bayless. There's a room of about 10 people in there, producers, directors, assistants, production uh, assistants. Uh, would you give up golf for a year to improve your golf game? And he said, I've had more sex than everybody together in this room. So that wasn't even the answer to the question. That wasn't the question. Woody, and, wasn't wasn't cold pizza like the target demographic was females? So weren't they trying? I guess they thought you guys were two hunks. Maybe that's what led to the uh, success. What the target audience was to steal uh, people from today and and CBS this morning, and mm -hmm. you see, they, they wanted to just kind of slice into those morning shows, so they felt like the dimension of sports, and they added with that news and interviews. We had a lot of rock stars and uh, bands and and uh, celebrities uh, on the show, and so I would guess it was about seventy percent sports. And they hired someone from. Uh, one of the morning shows on the network to be the producer of the show. So anyway, uh, that was the, the pregame discussion. On the air, they asked me the question, would you give up golf for a year? And I said, yeah, same question. Yeah, I've given up golf for that. Yeah, yeah, I would do that to shoot a 75. And they turned to Skip and said, would you give up golf for a year? And he said, I've had a lot more sex than Woody. I got up out of my chair and went around and tried tried my best to choke him. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he, Skip, and I know he's still doing this, Skip was in great shape. I mean, he worked out, he sat on a, a stationary bike and watched sports 24 hours a day. He spent about 20 hours a day on a bar stool. <laughs> So I wasn't working out. And so we got in a live a fight on live TV that spilled out onto 8th Avenue. We were about a block from uh, Madison Square Garden. We were right there by uh, Empire State Building. 
and we were out on the street, kind of, and I could hear in my IFB that the producer was saying to the cameraman, "Keep getting it, keep pushing, get as much of it as you can." And I thought, well, that's kind of the end of this. How this one's going to be. And, uh, he and Stephen A. Smith ended up together, and it's kind of funny how all of this kind of uh, really uh, works together. Jay Mariotti. I uh, used to be a columnist in Denver, and I was his boss. I was a sports editor, and he he had come from the other newspaper across the street to work for us. And and uh, I didn't like him very much, but that didn't bother me. But he left to go to the national newspaper, which uh, had a short uh, life. And I said, let's go outside and tell everybody you're leaving. All these are true stories. At the Denver Post, I was a sports editor and a columnist, and I went out and I said, uh, people, uh, Jay Mariotti's leaving. My work is done here. I've accomplished all I could. <laughs> and then he left. Every time I saw him at a sports event, I'd say, hi, Jay, and he'd say, fuck you. And it, that went on for like three years. That is true. That's all he would say. And I would always say, people like following me around when they saw Mariotti coming, because they knew this was going to happen, I go, hey, Jay, how you doing? So uh, when they started around the horn, they said, how do you feel about if we bring Jay Mariotti over there? Went, well, he's not going to like me, because <laughs> I was the first guy they chose for around the horn. We met at Carnegie Deli in New York, and it was Bob Ryan, uh, Tim Kalashaw, guys who were originals on uh, around the horn, Jay Mariotti, uh, uh, Max Kellerman, the producer of the show, directors. And so I sat down at the table and Mariotti was about two feet away. And I said, hi, Jay. And I know what he's going to say to me. I said, hi, Jay. And he said, hi, Woody, how you doing? And I went, oh, he's changed because of the show. But we had a battle on around the horn. We were uh, antagonists for several years until we got into uh, some trouble. Yeah, so uh, we, that goes from nine eleven to right. We've had we had Mary I on the show, and you know he he's always quick to note that despite the fact that he hasn't been on around the horn in over a decade, he's still top five all all time wins. You of course are at the top of the list. I don't know if anyone's going to be passing Mariotti anytime soon to crack into the top five. So. He's very impressed by that, but you, you're, you're going to be untouchable, Woody, at the top of the, the leaderboard. I don't know what that accomplishes, actually. <laughs> What's that worth? <laughs> you know, nobody's going to. I think what, and I am honest. Uh, I, I mean, I'm honest on the show, and my personality is not much different. But I think what people will always remember is the blackboard. And that's kind of a sad state about me as a journalist for 60 years that uh, the blackboard that's behind me with this, these cute puns or quotes or whatever it is, that will be remembered. And I thought, I'm, it, it, and, and I'll tell you some things today that you don't care about, but I've really never talked about is I assumed after uh, 10 or 15, I didn't think the show, let me back up. I didn't think the show would last longer than 13 weeks. When they when they put it together, I just felt like it didn't have the chemistry or the concept 
that would really work. And that's why I asked him, who's going to watch this show? And in a book that's about ESPN, Tim Cowshaw said, everybody that they put together, I think it was five or six people, they felt like all of them belonged and I didn't belong. That because I was soupy sales and you have to go back in history. He had an afternoon show for kids that was really for adults out of Cleveland and Detroit. And then it was national. And I was kind of copying Soupy Sales' concept of just being silly. And Tim Kalshaw told the guys who wrote that book, uh, these guys are having all the fun. He said, paste and blog. And he said, after the show was on the week uh, on TV for two weeks, they felt like Woody Page was the show, that they all had to develop personalities. The belief was it was going to be like a daily uh, sports reporters. For anybody that's... Uh, your age or older will remember on Sunday mornings there was a serious sports topic yep. show that included Bob Ryan and, and several other sports writers. And that's what Mariotti thought it was going to be. We were doing a daily really serious when the producer of the show, Max Kellerman, uh, who, who came to be one of my best friends in life, droned on about New York and the Yankees and boxing in New York and Madison Square Garden. And we're sitting in the, in the deli and he's just going on. And I finally said, Max, you apparently have me confused with somebody who gives a fuck what you think. And the producer said, that's the show. <laughs> and so I think the other guys got that it was supposed to be, the idea of the show was like two guys sitting at a bar yelling at each other about a sports outcome or a game that's in place. So that was that was basically the because they told me I met with the ESPN executives at the Super Bowl. I said, "What is the show going to be?" And they said, "Sort of like Hollywood Squares, and you'll be the Met Center Square." And I went, "Really?" And so I didn't think it was going to last very long, but I thought we got past uh, we got past a lot of criticism early on. And it, it caught on because people like, uh, pardon the interruption, they love Tony and Michael. And then they kind of figured out what we were. And I thought, well, it's going to last for a while. And somebody else will come along and I'll pass along the quote board, you know, the blackboard, with just my idea of playing. And I keep waiting for somebody who's going to come along. <laughs> I thought I'd be gone like 10 years ago. And nobody's going to come. Nobody wants to do it. My assistant, my associate, knows that some of those Blackboard quotes are written under performance-enhancing stuff. <laughs> Woody, how'd you come up with the idea for the blackboard? And is it tough at this point on the show to be putting new quotes all the time? It's tough. Uh, I was in New York working on Cold Pizza. I was working on Dream Job. I was doing Disney, Kids Disney Channel. I didn't realize when I agreed to go to New York that they were going to use me on 14 shows a day. I was like, who's the guy from New York that was uh, who wants to be a millionaire? He did the show in the, the Regis Filmin. 
I talked once because he was a big Notre Dame fan, and and I saw him on the street, and he said, "You're on TV more than I am." And Regis was on the the Tonight Show, <laughs> like for because Skip and I would take two shows that that would appear later, and and, and Cold Pizza was on two hours live, and it repeated two more hours, and, and I was that I was on television like six hours a day, and he thought. This is ridiculous. I don't want to see me six hours. Why would anybody else want to do me? But uh, my assistant then and I were walking down the street, and the studio that I had in New York City uh, was in the New Yorker Hotel. If you're familiar with that, that's that's where we were taping shows. And I said to him, "We got nothing in the background. Like I have nothing in the background here. This is my office." And he said, what do you want to put back there? And I said, every show has, all these shows have footballs in the back. They'll have Jets footballs or helmets. And I said, we're going to have something else. What do you think about that? I said, maybe a blackboard and I'll just put something on it like, you suck, Marriott. <laughs> and we, our first blackboard came from Toys R Us and it had plastic letters and you could put them on the board. And we had just enough letters to say, Marriott or something like that. And then we got another blackboard that he could use chalk on. Uh, so this goes back to 2003. And I told him, I said, let's get a blackboard that we can uh, use chalk on and actually use more than three threes, three E's. And he brought that in. And uh, I, I just wrote a few quotes and I got a call from the vice president of ESPN saying, lose the whiteboard. That's not ESPN. That's like we're kids show or something. And I went, okay, fine. A week later, he called back and he said, I guess I shouldn't say the fuck word, but he said, put the fucking whiteboard up. <laughs> and I said, really? He, I said, you got so many calls? From Nick and Joe and everybody else out there saying, oh, we love the blackboard. He said, the president of the network liked the blackboard. <laughs> it went back up. It was off the air. Nobody knows that story, but it was off the air for a week. And I went, that's ah, okay. I will put a football up there behind me. And so then the, uh, the, the blackboard had one other problem. The same assistant, one day... He put on the he put on the blackboard. I I would say him, but he'd come up with one every once in a while. He said, if you don't like my performance, call 1 800 347 And the producer of the show called me that afternoon and said, The blackboard is finished. You may be finished. And I said, What do you mean? He said, if you call that number, it's an escort service. <laughs> and so um, on the show, <laughs> you called to get a prostitute <laughs> with the blackboard. And he said, take the blackboard away. And the next day, I got a call saying, put the blackboard back up. So <laughs> they just sort of put it. I actually tell them, we show them before the show starts what the blackboards are. And I say to the producers and directors, they're saying, if you don't like this one, uh, you better you better tell me right away because it's about to be on the air. And the other panelists can't see it. So I make fun of them because the way the boxes are on that show, they can't actually, they don't watch me when I'm talking. 
they, they're looking at notes or on their cell phone or whatever it is. And so uh, Reality and the other uh, panelists don't really know what's on the blackboard. So I can make fun of all of them. And they see it later on. And I'll hear from Sarah Spade later on about, you know, what was that blackboard about? Uh, Mary Mariotti used to complain about them all the time. Uh, but I would guess of several hundred thousand people I hear from that the blackboard is generally appreciated or accepted for being what it is, just my idea of something we'll you know, have some fun with. And so when do I do them? Occasionally I I do them at bars on bar napkins. And I would guess out of 10 that I come up with, we use like two or three. A lot of them are not. I, I did a book of, uh, there's a book on Amazon, you can buy it, it has about 2,000 of them in it. And, and that was a bestseller for a while. And I've been asked to do it again, but uh, I don't know. I guess I've done 5,000. I guess that's my only accomplishment life, guy. And I, that should end all your questions. Well, listen, you said it yourself. You've been in this business for 60 years, right? You're not, you're not going to stay in this business for 60 years unless you have some personality to you. Now, we could walk you through your career from the Whitehaven Press uh, wanting to be a journalist in high school, University of Tennessee, your early days writing for the Knoxville Journal, the Commercial Appeal of Memphis, uh, the Rocky Mountain News, the Denver Post, the Gazette now. You, you turned what primarily started as a writing career and you made a transition into TV and broadcasting uh, and you were a part of one of the most successful uh, entities that has ever existed at ESPN, right? So... You're not going to have all that success unless you have talent and you're a great storyteller and you're entertaining, right? So uh, what would be the best piece of advice to somebody who is looking to do that right now? To a lot of colleges. And so I was a, a, a poor kid in the South. I grew up in uh, government housing, Goldfield uh, Saddle. Grew up in the housing project where Elvis Presley, if anybody saw the Elvis movie, they show him as a kid at uh, Lauderdale Courts, and that's where we lived, and I used to listen to him when I was a little kid uh, uh, singing and playing guitar. And my mother said he'd never amount to anything. She, she said, why are you hanging out with that kid? And Elvis and I were friends throughout our, our lives. Uh, and so I don't think there was much promise for me to be, well, I mean, it turned out okay for Elvis, so I guess I turned out okay. But I speak at all of these colleges, and that question, of course, comes up all the time. And I put a lot of thought into it years ago, but in terms of how did I keep a job for all this long or become somewhat successful, it, I, it, it boils down to three or four things. Number one, work harder than everybody. And I think when I was in high school and college in terms of journalism. I was a worst student. I, I won the most distinguished uh, Tennessee alumni award and Peyton Manning found out he had won it the year before. That's a pretty good company to be in, Peyton Manning, and then you win this award. And Peyton said to me at a practice, you won that award? You know, yeah, yeah. It was a question, not like, like a statement. And he said, I'm giving mine back. If they give it to you, it must be worthless. <laughs> well, it was right. I, 
And he used to, after a game, Peyton Manning had would win a game. And I'd go in the locker room and I'd walk over by him and, and nobody would ask him questions until he changed out of his uniform into civilian clothes. And I'd walk by and I'd hear, Woody, Woody. And it was Peyton. And I thought, well, he's going to tell me some kind of scoop or something. And he said, you should be the athletic director at Tennessee. And then he turned around. <laughs> That's the kind of, co of, of conversations. Once he said, get the ESPN plane and we'll fly to the Tennessee-Alabama game. I said, they're not going to give me the ESPN plane. You are Peyton Manning. You are Peyton fucking Manning. You get us a plane and you fly us there. And he said, no, but you can stay in my hotel in Knoxville. <laughs> and we'd have that conversation. People come over and said, what sort of inside information did he give you? We talked about Tennessee a lot. Anyway, when I speak at colleges, I tell them, I try to figure out how this all worked. Look, uh, not a lot of skill. Uh, on radio, you're called a, a person personality. You know that. They'll go, Howard Stern, he's a radio personality. On TV, you're called a talent. And I thought, I have no personality. I have no talent. I don't belong on the radio. I don't belong on television. I worked harder than everybody else. Not as a student, but in college as the editor of the high school, uh, of the college daily newspaper in Tennessee, I worked hard. Uh, I was doing a midnight to six radio show on a, on a station there called Woody Wake Up, and I know nobody was listening to it because I would uh, have a record that would skip for like 19 minutes and nobody called and complained. And I'd go out to breakfast and leave the record on and it'd just play over and over again and I'd get breakfast and come back. And, uh, I think the only girls that were having uh, overnight parties were probably listening to the music in the background. And I worked for the newspaper, the daily newspaper in Oxford, Knoxville Journal, and I had a TV show on the campus. I worked. I worked very hard at what I wanted to do in life. If you work harder, you guys are doing a podcast. If you work hard at this podcast, it's probably better than how many podcasts do you think there are about sports? Probably five thousand. Just I don't know. If you work harder than those other five thousand, you're going to be in the top. 20% success rate. That's what I did. This is my advice to everybody out there. You want to be successful in, in, in broadcasting, journalism, ESPN, car, automobile business, whatever it is. If you work harder in school and college in your life than everybody else, you rise to the top 20%. If you're more passionate I once asked a psychiatrist, I said, why is it that the that I actually am successful? And he said, you're more passionate than anybody. You, you love what you're doing. Most people, in what he told me, he said, and, and I'm not putting anybody down with this, but he said, you know, a guy collecting garbage is not passionate about what he's doing. He collects garbage, he puts it on his truck and moves on. So that's it. Number two is if I if then if you're more passionate than anybody else about what you're doing, you pass another 10% of the people. And a third is creativity. 
So if you're passionate about the podcast you're doing, you're working hard at it to get people that are really good. I saw the list of people you've had come on the show. You work hard at that. You work hard at putting on a good good show. You're passionate that you're excited about doing this every week. I would I assume you're doing it once a week, maybe more. You're passionate about it. You love it. You want to do it. You'd probably want to do it three times a day if you could. If they pay if somebody would pay you, you'd do it three times a day. The third thing is to be creative. What does that mean? A blackboard. Yeah, a blackboard is creative. You can laugh and you're smiling at that. And that sounds stupid. Creativity is in college when they moved, they took a male dormitory in Tennessee and moved the men out and put the women in that dormitory. And our journalism professor told us to do a story on the women moving into the men's dormitory. Uh, everybody in my class or the 40 other people that did this paper or the story wrote about the women and do you like uh, the lobby and the plants and stuff like that. I went and interviewed uh, uh, female students about what were they doing with the urinals. Seemed to me an odd story is that they'd go into the bathroom in the dormitory and there would be urinals everywhere. And they told me that they 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 uh, wash their hose and underwear in the urinals, and that uh, they actually had peeing contests in the urinals, and two or three other things that they were doing. I turned it in, and the professor gave me an F, and everybody who did the normal stuff got an A. I sent that to a national collegiate uh, uh, writing contest and, and I won. <laughs> but it was creative. 30 people did the same story and I did the different story. Now it may have been silly and it might have been put off the wall, but it was different. When I when I, I've been to 40 something Super Bowls and guys would come up to me as writers and say, what are you writing this year? I would I went to a nudist colony colony in Florida and asked uh who they were cheering for in the game because they weren't wearing any clothes. You, it wasn't like they had on a Mets cap or you know, Jets sweatshirt. And Rick Rowley, who was writing the back uh, column for Sports Illustrated, said, what are you doing this week? I said, I'm going to a news column. Why? I said, nobody else is. They went, on the day of, uh, of the Tuesday interviews with the players, you got 10,000 people asking the same questions to those guys. I went to a nudist colony. I went to a leper colony. I, I tried out for Jeopardy on that day in Los Angeles. And in Phoenix, Arizona, the local columnist there said to me, what are, you, what are you doing? I said, I'm going out to interview a medicine man at a reservation, one of the Native Americans. And I went out, true story, went out and I found uh, their leader. He was the what was called the medicine man. And I said to him, uh, you keep up with football. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're kind of sitting around and probably smoking something that's uh, illegal in 32 states. And I said, uh, it was uh, the, it was the Cowboys and 
the Steelers were playing in that Super Bowl. And I said, uh, so you're, you're going to watch the Super Bowl? Oh, sure. Yeah. I said, what team are you pulling for? And he said, the Cowboys. And I said, an Indian pulling for the Cowboys? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And I'm thinking, this is going well. So I said, uh, what do you think the score is going to be? Cowboys 48. Uh, I said, did you read the lead? Did you talk to the world? Did you go up in the mountains for three days and contemplate? He said, no, I watched ESPN. <laughs> and <laughs> it came back and I wrote this column about the medicine band pulling for the Cowboys. The Arizona, the Phoenix paper ran my column on the front page and the guy who was their columnist was on the sports page and he came to me and he said, I should have gone with you. I should have done it. I'm not trying to impress you with my ability. I just try to always think of the story that everybody else is not doing. That was true in college. That was true in high school. It's, it's true to this day. Uh, I did a story this week. Uh, John Elway left the Broncos after 40 years, and uh, nobody had interviewed him. I mean, this is one of the great, greatest Top 10, maybe top five quarterbacks of all time. I, I called the golf course where he was. And I, I knew that he was in Palm Springs and he was in the bar and we talked and I I did a column with him and he I thought he was at peace with himself and I, I also thought that he was about as truthful as he's ever been. Uh and I said uh Let's do your top seven memories. And he said, and he kind of chuckled. And I said, of course, that's because your number. And he said to me, the number I wanted was 11. He said, I was 11 in high school. And when I went to Stanford, I asked for number 11. And an older player had that number and wouldn't give it to me. So John Elway was the most famous with Mickey Mantle. Those are the two most famous sevens in the history of sports. He didn't want seven. He wanted 11. Seven was his second choice. And it was basically based on 7-Eleven, the convenience store. <laughs> he went, well, it was sounded like 11-7-7-11. I found it funny that nobody else, this John Elway had 40 years with the Broncos. Second most Super Bowl appearances by quarterback. Brady, of course, number one. And I'm just a goof. Columnist and I interviewed. I found him. I found him and interviewed him. He's got nine grandkids. Stuff that he hasn't talked about. And uh, I did that last Sunday for Easter Sunday, which seems kind of appropriate. I don't know why, but uh, and still nobody's been able to find. Him. Nobody thought maybe to call the golf course where he might be playing golf. That didn't. Again, that's not me, but that answers your question. I I've always Bob Knight who's been sick lately, and I got along. He used to come to, uh, when he was coaching in Indiana, he would come to Colorado to hunt fish. And I knew a guy he hunted and fished with, and, and Bob would talk to me. And he would call me. And he said to me, uh, most people learn to read and write when they're in the second grade, and they go on to more important things. I never went on to more important things. I read and I write. I write books. I read books. And I work hard. I'm passionate. And I'm creative. 
That's the advice. If you do that, you're now in the top 10 percentile. That doesn't put me in the, you know, I don't know what group that is, but I think that puts you beyond most everybody else in life, no matter what, no matter what you choose. I do tell people, particularly lately, that I, there was no vision in my mind that there would ever be anything like around the horn. I couldn't, I, I asked Dikembe Mutombo once that when he was growing up in Africa, I said, did you dream of being an NBA player? And he said, yeah. he said, I couldn't dream beyond the end of the dirt road. And I thought that made sense. He didn't know there was such a thing as basketball. He, he played soccer when, when he grew old. He didn't know about basketball until he kind of left and went to big cities. I didn't know. Who knew there was going to be around the horn? You guys, 10 years ago when you were watching Around the Horn, there was no such thing as a podcast. You, you couldn't dream of having a successful podcast. What I tell students now, or young people, or guys like you, dream of what doesn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. If I were a young man, I would be I would be thinking of what what is next beyond this podcast. What is the next big thing beyond a YouTube channel, a podcast? I don't know what it is. I'm too tired and old to know. But you two guys, Joe, Nick, you'll have you'll be doing something in two years that you didn't even know exist. You didn't know there was going to be a podcast, and you woke up one day and went, "Whoa, let's do a podcast." I woke up one day and said, oh, I think I'll do, <laughs> I'll be on radio. I grew up listening to radio talk shows uh, on, on, from Cleveland in Memphis, Tennessee. And I could pick up this station and, and there was a guy named uh, Joe Franklin who would talk to kids who would call him and ask questions. And he'd go, go do your homework. Go to bed, kid. Uh, and it was, he was a Howard Stern type before Howard Stern. And I, that, that's what I kind of thought, you know, maybe I can do that. Maybe I could do talk radio someday. That's all I could dream of. Kimby McTuggle could only dream of maybe playing soccer, but he was seven feet tall. He could never dream of this. I couldn't dream of a black boy. Uh, you couldn't dream when you were 15 years old of a podcast. So people need to dream but don't dream of what you think then you know, Alexander Graham Bell woke up one day and said, here's an idea, a telephone. Well, that's what I, so I tell college students, dream of the next thing. What, it, what podcasts are going to evolve into something beyond that? I'm being too serious. You'd rather me be silly. Go ahead. No, I, I mean, it's all good. You've accomplished so much yeah. in your career. You, you did the, the big expose he'll say on Invesco mile high you got you got sued there you, you are a member of the pro football hall of fame committee baseball hall of fame voter so what are just some of the favorite events or type of stories that you've gotten to to do over the years i got to be really good friends with Judy serving and we were both the same age and he was in the aba i was covering the aba and I just talked to him and he just come into the league and I talked to him in the room, in the, in the locker room, and we kind of fit. I asked him about his name and he told me a great story that his mother had, 
he had a single mother. And when she gave birth, uh, the nurse said, you should, it was his birthday. You look it up. It's it George Washington's birthday. Uh, you should name your kid George Washington Irving. And Judy's mother said, you name your kid George Washington Smith. I'm naming my kid Julius Irving. And I thought that was a cute, I mean, I thought that was a really good story of why he was Dr. J. He would have been Dr. G.W. if she had named him George Washington. And he said, that was a really good question. And we got to be close friends. And I went, you know, this is me and Julius. Now people say, oh, he's bragging about it. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that was just me saying, how you doing, kid? <laughs> I like your game. The thing with, in, uh, uh, with the stadium in Denver is a lucky story. I was, I was invited by my ex-girlfriend to come to the opening of a Mexican restaurant. And she said, would you do me a favor? And I was pretty well known at that time. And then, if you stop by. Say hello to the owner. That's it. Here, I'll do it for you. Went there, valet parked my car, went in, said hello, was leaving. I think I had a margarita and maybe a couple of tacos or something. I was leaving. A guy came down the street who was obviously drunk. It was around happy hour time. And he said to my ex girlfriend, I could tell he was hitting on her, which didn't bother me. I, we were no longer together. And she said, uh, this is what he paid. This is, he said his name. And he said, I'm executive vice president of uh, whatever the name of that company. What is the name of that company? The, the, Invesco. Which had got into a lot of trouble. They're now back. They were doing college basketball. They got in really deep trouble, went bankrupt. Anyway, uh, he said, I'm by, Executive Vice President Investo. And I said, You probably don't want to talk to me. I don't like your stadium name. He said, We don't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> and my ex-girlfriend said to him, Back it up, back it up. You don't want to, you don't want to talk to Woody about this. And he said, Oh, yeah, yeah. And I could tell he was bragging. He said, We hate it. We call it uh, by a name that uh, that's kind of funny. And it was named after woman's uh, birth device and she's saying to him don't don't tell him about this and he said i don't care that he knows we all we kid about it the president is an idiot for doing this but a true story so i leave i go right that here's there that i did i wanted it to be mile high stadium like the original one that's a great name like yankee stadium Chase Stadium, yeah, go through the great names that now have uh, uh, corporate names on them. I didn't want it to be uh, in Vesco Field. I wanted it to be Mile High Stadium. So I wrote this thing saying, they agree with us. The people that work for Invesco think it's the worst name in the whole world. I got on a plane and went to Wimbledon to cover the tennis tournament and the British Open. I get a call from the other paper saying, we're being sued for two billion dollars by Vesco if you made that up. And I went, what? <laughs> yeah, shortened the story. He had given me his card. 
I wouldn't have remembered his name, but he gave me his actual card and said, Executive Vice President. When I left to go to London on the flight, I put it on my desk at home. And the editor said, they're selling us. Do you have any proof? I said, yes, I have my ex-girlfriend, who's well-known in town, she's a PR person, and I've got this card on my desk. Go there, let them go in, take the card. They said they're investigating that you made this up live. Uh, so it, it, it was a big, obviously you knew about it because it's on the internet forever. And uh, uh, they did sue. I don't know that they were exactly, but it is a big money item. On Thursday, they publicly announced that they were backing out of the lawsuit. They found the guy <laughs> and he admitted it. And they found out doing their, you know, they probably hired really expensive lawyers and investigators. They found out everybody was calling and people were calling me saying they knew people who worked at it at, at Invesco. They called it by this other name and diaphragm because I was told it looked like a diaphragm if you were in a helicopter. I thought it looked like a spaceship myself. I, I wouldn't have come up with that name. So anyway, it became a rather famous national story, and they backed they backed out into their lawsuit, and I I saved my job. I think I saved my job. If it had been anybody that maybe I didn't know or my ex one my ex girlfriend, maybe they wouldn't have stood up for me. But I also had the card, which was pretty good proof. You know, that was like a Perry Mason moment where there's the card, there's the guy, we know the name. So uh, stories. Uh, it was like what I said about the Super Bowl. I think that uh, when everybody else was interviewing players and me going to trial for Jeopardy. <laughs> so my my belief about trying out with Jeopardy is maybe they'll, have a, they'll maybe have a uh, sports uh, subject that I do good. And if I studied the Bible, which I did as a Southern Baptist, I, it turned out that I became a, a, a question on Jeopardy. That's kind of one of my problems. About this journalist is on a show called Around the Horn. I don't. I, I think the subject must have been porn or something. <laughs> and my daughter and I were at a movie, a Marvel movie, I think, and everybody's calling me saying you're on Jeopardy tonight. Uh, they talked to me about being on as a celebrity. You know, and, yeah, I couldn't get on as a <laughs> as a regular guy. I I just try to, and Rick Rowley, who became, I think, the premier sports writer in this country for a long time, I, I helped him get his early job, and we, we've we had a lot of conversations about it. We both feel the same way. The bigger the event, the, the smaller you make the story. So if you're at the Super Bowl, find the small story. If you're at a high school track meet, turn that into a big story. And that's what I, that's advice I give to to young people who are journalists or studying that in colleges, that everybody covers the Super Bowl as a big story, finding a small story. And if you're going to, I, found, I, I, I talked to a girl who threw the discus at the state high school meet, and people go, why do you go to a state high school track meet? They have the greatest hamburgers there. And I go every year because the hamburgers were like, you know, it was parents making hamburgers. And I thought, gee, I like the hamburgers. I'll go there and I'll find the column. That's true. That's the true story. That I talked to a girl who's a discus thrower, and she was she had just set the state record, 
and she was going to get a plaque or trophy, her school had gone out of business. They closed her school. The track meet was after the school had closed. She couldn't take the statue back to her school and put it in the trophy case. She couldn't even go back and have a celebration with everybody. It was a small town in Colorado. And I made that into the biggest story I possibly could. I thought, what a great big story. And so I think it makes sense to go to state high school school track meets because the burgers are better than anywhere else. And when you go to the Super Bowl, find the smallest story. That might be uh, you know, a, a coach that is 96 years old. That uh, When the Broncos played and won the Super Bowl, no, no. When the Broncos played in set, yeah, when, when they won Super Bowl 50, I went and found John Ralston, who had been their coach in, in his uh, retirement home, and he had uh, Alzheimer's. And I talked to him about, he was only like 10 miles away from the stadium where the Broncos ran the Super Bowl. And nobody thought to maybe go find John Ralston. And I didn't know he was in a, that he had Alzheimer's or that he was in a retirement uh, place. I found out where he lived and I went there and, I, and his wife answered the door. And I told her that, you know, I'd like to talk to John, who had been a coach at Stanford. He getting won the Rose Bowl. He, was, he actually made the Broncos into a competitive team, their first winning record. And she said, he's not here. He lives in his home now. And I went and I asked him, I said, now, can I talk to John Lawson? Sure, he's having lunch. And I went into his room and he, he was a he, he could answer the food thing. But I think that's that's my I'm not a I'm not a personality, I'm not a talent. But I think I'm creative. You guys are you guys have reached out to me. That doesn't make you anything, but you reached out to people that you want to have on your podcast. And you'll find, as you have, that you know, people will do your podcast and you'll become famous. And somebody will say, why did you become famous? Because we just were willing to reach out to people and say, come on our podcast. We turned that into a YouTube channel. We turned that into a network. We turned that into the best uh, sports network. That's that's how it works. Uh, Bob and I was telling me that... Uh, you create your own luck. Because I'd say, yeah, you won national championship. He won, what, three, I think? And I said, did you feel like you got lucky? You create your own luck. He said, everybody talks about luck plus skill. No, no. Luck is not something you find on the street. Luck is something you create. So, boy, I've given you too much. Ask me something that would be funny. All right, Woody, what, what sporting stadiums have the best food? Dodger Dog. Now, they have changed companies, but I would fly to Los Angeles just to have a... It's funny you brought that up, because this week I looked. There's a new company making the... I think I've read of Farmer John's or Farmer Jim's or whoever's been doing it for like 70 years, and they got a new company, and I went... Really, it's not going to be able to taste like the regular Dodger Dog. Wonder if I can get Farmer John. I think that's what it's company with the old, the sold old one. If I call him and say, "Would you send me some Dodger Dogs?" Uh, <laughs> and I haven't been able to really find them yet. 
the thing about the hamburger at the track meet, I went and found the box that the hamburger meat came in and I called that company because I thought I don't need to go to the track meat. I can make these hamburgers myself. They would not sell them to me by the gross. That's the way they sell them sports kids sports events. And I said, but I'm Woody Page. <laughs> I don't play the Woody Page card, but I played it that day. I said, I'm Woody Page. You know, I'm on ESPN and stuff. Can't you? I'll say, I, what do you, I'll, I'll pay $150 for a dozen hamburgers. Because I wanted to see what I could do. Uh, best Baltimore barbecue, uh, Albion right field fence. Uh, the sandwich in Pittsburgh from the, the deli that uh, named their sandwich after the quarterback. Uh, it has fries and coleslaw on it. And, Roethlisberger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I When I go to, you know, I've been to every, when I go to cities, I go, to, there's a place in San Francisco that's called the Stinking Rose. It has the greatest garlic fries in the world. The garlic fries at San Francisco and Oakland. Oakland actually has as bad a stadium as that is. They have better garlic, but whole stadium smells like garlic fries, and you could smell them because there's only like eight people going to the A's game, so <laughs> you could you don't have to stand in line or anything. So that shows you something about me that I when I when the season comes uh, season comes around and the Broncos schedule comes out, I go, oh gee, I'm going to Baltimore. I'll have crab cake. On crab cake. I'm going to New England. I'll have clam chowder. I'm going to New York. I'll I'll go down to I, when I lived there. I used to hang out at a place in Little Italy. I go there for. It was a place where, in The Godfather, where the 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 knife stabs one of the bad guys at the bar. Well, there is. My dad lives down there. I know that place really well. Yeah, I so I, I go there and sit at the bar, and um, I love the Italian bread that's got the meat inside of it. So that's what I think about when I go to New York. Buffalo, I go to the Anchor Bar. They have, isn't that interesting stuff? So, yes, I'm familiar with every stadium and the food in it. And I, I, there, there are a lot of new stadiums lately, but I've been to you know, every NFL stadium, most of the baseball stadiums, and most of the basketball arenas. I have not been to the new Warriors place since we moved to San Francisco. And then each one of them I would try. There was a New York writer, very famous, Paul Zimmerman. And he played uh, at Hopto. Uh, uh, he was an offensive lineman. He became Dr. Z, and he was in Sports Illustrated and was considered the ultimate. Uh, and he was on, on the Hall of Fame committee with me, and he'd sit next to me. We would go to the Senior Bowl, and he was showing me his folder where he kept every national anthem that he ever heard, who sang it, and how long it was. And he had the shortest, the longest, the best, the worst. And he never wrote it. And he'd show me that book, and it was like his Bible that he, throughout his career, so he does that. I go to Philadelphia and go, oh, do I go to Pat's cheesesteak or do I the one across the street? So that's terrible. That's, I can, I could, I could, you know, that's terrible. I'll, I'll tell you, I met a guy 
you guys are Joe, are you in the New York area too? Yes. When I was a kid, I was a Yankees fan and a Cardinals fan. And I say I collected baseball cards. And there were 16 teams in in baseball. I knew every player on every team. That's not how much of a team. I was 10, 11. When I, 10 years ago or something, I go to Florida. A friend takes me to a lunch meeting in the Sir Thomas Club or something. I'm not a speaker. I'm just going with my buddy. And he says, we got this guy over here who played Major League Baseball. Let me introduce you to him. He thought, I assumed that I wanted to meet all baseball players. And his name was, uh, he said, he's a dentist. And his name is Dr. Wise. And so introduced me. I could tell Dr. Wise had no interest in me whatsoever. He said, what he's written for Sports Illustrated and we've kind of been on TV and ignorant stuff. And I could tell he had no interest. And I said, Casey Wise? And he said, yes. And I said, switch hitter, 267, lifetime average. Cleveland Indians uh, played uh, for the Milwaukee Braves, backup second baseman, a utility infielder. You went to Florida State to become a dentist. And I went on and he sat down in the chair. He was walking by, sat down in the chair and he said, what? And he turned to all these guys and he said, what the hell is this? What did you you set him up and they said we don't know him he just came up out of nowhere and i said katie why so uh switch hitter and uh you were born in 1937 and and you played in two world series against the yankees and i said and here are the starters for the walkie brace joe adcock who brother frank adcock was one of the two first basemen Second base was Red Changes. Shortstop was uh, uh, Felix Mantilla. Third base, Eddie Matthews, an MVP, Hall of Famer. I, catchers, Del Rice and Del Crandall, Warren Spahn, Lou Burdett, and the first Little League player to ever make it to the Major League, Georgia. And Casey Wise said, I've never heard anything like that. How, how do you know that? And I said, Kind of what I do. <laughs> I said, I memorized all the players in 1956. I was 10 years old. And he said, that's the most incredible. And I said, my my daughter could use the dentist to, to see her. So uh, that's worthless. How's that for worthless information? It's like what you said about the most wins. I won this week on the, around the horn. And I said, how many wins is that? And I thought the producer said 666. And I went, well, that's not good. <laughs> it's the sign of the devil. <clears throat> and he said, no, 656. And so that's how I know, because I don't, I don't really pick. I think if I uh, if I Google the show, they, they might have it on there. But uh, it's fun. Uh, I haven't really talked much about it, but... Uh, Tony, there is no plot of who's going to win the show. You don't know until the moment arrives. And I've won many times not knowing what I'm going to say at the end of the show. And I even did a show where I won and I said, I don't have anything. And so for 30 seconds, I just sat there and stared at the thing, at the camera. And 
They said, that's the worst 30 seconds of all time. And I said, yes, and I can't ever repeat it. Dude, that's a one-time only. <laughs> that's a walk-off. I like... Uh, they, the show has become very diverse, which I think is fantastic. We have uh, as many women as we do. I think there's like 21 or 22 now people. I, I did every show every day for like 15, 16 years, and I said I need to I need to back off this. And so I do one or two a week, and I, I have a contract for I don't know maybe a hundred shows. And I really think uh, the women who have joined the show over the years have added to the presence. We have uh, we've added uh, many, many uh, African Americans. We have gay panelists. We have married panelists. We have the uh, Asian American. People have become big stars. Nina Kimes has become a big star as a result of of being on around one Sarah Spain. Uh, it, it's become, it, it's evolved for the good. It started as for white men. We weren't, I wasn't old then. I, well, I guess I was, so maybe 53 or something. But, uh, and I'm not the oldest. Bob Ryan still does the show, and he's, his wife and I are. We're born on the same day. Bob's about two months older than me. So I always tell him he's the other station. Uh, but it's evolved in the, you know, from when you were seeing it. I don't know how old you guys are, but it's, it was evolving when you first started watching it. I thought it was the same kind of show I would have watched when I was a kid. <clears throat> I watched Bat the original Batman. We'd watch that once a week in my fraternity house in college. I watched the Soupy Sales show and everybody out there, including you guys, look up Soupy Sales. He was a great comedian who did an afternoon talk show nationally for kids, but it wasn't for kids. It was for adults. Kids didn't really understand the jokes that were behind the jokes. And I met him uh, at a club years later, I mean, many, many years later, told him that I was actually good. My personality on Around the Horn is a combination of Soupy Sales and Dan Reeves, who is a Hall of Fame type coach, coach the Giants. And Dan Reeves used to rip on media and come out and say, Why do I have to always straighten you guys out? You don't know what you're talking about. So when I got on the air, I was doing Soupy Sales, who's a little goofy, and I was doing Dan Reeves going, Jay Mariotti, you don't know what you're talking about. And I used that line this week. I went, We were talking about the NBA playoffs, and I said to the other three panelists, why do I have to always straighten you guys out? And that was my salute to the late Dan Reeves, and nobody knew. I mean, I'll say on the show, you have to look at the schedule. <laughs> and that's how you, on the Google site, you'll see Woody Pace says, you look at the schedule all the time. Well, that's a running gag that I don't ever look at the schedule. I don't know what the schedule is, but the researcher might tell me the schedule in my ear. Because the producer talks to me all the time. And it's usually, I, I won't put, I won't make him lie on the side, but he'll say, you're killing me, Woody. And he puts a word, an F word in there. And that's what, if you see me smiling, 
it's because the producer is saying I'm talking too long or uh, shut up or you know get on with it or whatever. And so you're looking at the panelists on around a horn, and we have these expressions, and they're probably based on the researcher saying in my head that the Jets are opening against the Giants and then they're playing Philadelphia. And I go, the Jets are opening against and I seem like I'm smart when I'm actually being said into my ear. So you talked about making your own luck before. So we've had a previous guest on this podcast where I think that's a really great story uh, and that we can actually trade stories. So we're trying to make it as concise as we can. Once upon a time, uh, last year, Nick and I, we had Scott Hamilton on the podcast with us. Now, Scott Hamilton, uh, as you know, Olympic gold medalist, you have your own story with him as well. But our story is that we had him on. Uh, and then a couple of days later, there was this big wrestling event, the WWE event, uh, their big stadium show with SummerSlam. That was at Nissan Stadium where the Titans play in Nashville. So we had Scott on that Thursday. And before the podcast started, Nick was picking his brain and found out uh, that he goes to hockey games there, to Predators games, and the wrestling came up. And Nick was like, oh, you should talk to him about, you know, you know, you wanting to go, blah, blah, blah. Little did we know, Scott knows an employee who works for the company. That employee provided Scott with tickets within a matter of a day or so. Scott was texting me and he said, hey, you know, I got you an extra ticket. I'm going with my son. Uh, we're sitting not far from the ring, which is right behind the commentary table. And uh, I ended up being on a plane 48 hours later on Saturday morning because the event was Saturday that, that night. And that was the first time I ever went to Nashville. So uh, without doing the podcast, never would interview Scott Hamilton. Without Nick speaking to him and bringing it up, would never know that all of that was going to transpire how it did. So talk about creating your own luck. Nick and I, uh, I don't think it goes over our heads. We create our own luck here and we've had a lot of really amazing experiences. So we know that you, after Scott won those gold medals at the Olympics, uh, you flew back with him. So talk to us what that experience was like meeting him in person and uh, let's trade stories here. He lived, he trained in Colorado. He, he didn't grow up here, but he trained in Colorado because the Olympic Center is here. And the Broadmoor, which is a famous uh, ring for national championships for both men and women, Dorothy Hamlin training. I mean, there are so many skaters. Now, plus you want to train at altitude before you go to the Olympics because of the altitude will help you, particularly when the Olympics were in Mexico City. Uh, anyway, I, I knew him in passing. But, but, uh, I go to Sarajevo, which is there's a bunch of, I mean, Yugoslavia no longer exists. Sarajevo's all of the Olympic venues were destroyed. And he won the gold medal. And here's the luck, the luck that comes in. You make your own luck, but it does happen that get on the plane and and I actually had a contract and I could fly first class, which was rare for a sports writer. Uh, but if you look at my history, I 
was in their newspaper ward, moved from one newspaper on one street to another newspaper on another street. And part of my deal was I said, I won't buy first class. I hate all that. And, and they made an agreement with me. This is about making your own work. I always wanted to fly first class. And I said, I do a lot of columns on the airplane, and I feel like I could write better if I'm in first class. And so they made me agree to put it in the contract that if I was writing a column, I could fly that flight on first class. Well, I opened my computer on every flight I was ever on, <laughs> and I'd write like two paragraphs. Yeah, I close it. And then I would drink. <laughs> I don't want to drink. And so I was flying first class because that was part of my deal. And coming on the plane with Scott Hamilton, and I went, hi, Scott. And he knew me well enough to say hello. And he said, oh, pardon me, Woody, I'm sitting in the first class seat next to you. And so we spent, he just won the gold medal. And so we sat next to each other, and his agent sat behind us. And I said, you want me to change places with your agent so you can sit next to him? He said, I see him all the time. You and I talk. I want to know about writing, and I assume you want to know about the gold medal. And so we spent, you know, 10 hours or something talking about stuff. So when I got back, I had a better story than I did at the venue when he won. And I had a story nobody else had because nobody spent 10 hours with him at that point. And I went, how lucky is that? And so it's across, and he was living in Denver. So it was across the front page. And, it was, and I went, gee, that's that's the Jew serving story, you know, all over there. Uh, you know, if you if you just make an effort at it, things tend to happen in, in Mecca. But uh, I was a young sports reporter in Memphis, and the outdoors editor covered wrestling. And I grew up uh, in the South. You grow up as a uh, uh, fan of wrestling and soccer racing. And college football. That's your whole life. And I assumed that'd be what I've covered when I was doing sports. College football, SEC. And uh, I did cover uh, stock car racing. I didn't feel like I'd cover wrestling because we all know, for those of you who don't, you know, it's fixed. Fixed is not the right word. It's, it's scripted. How about that? We'll go with scripted. And I loved it when I was a kid. And I became great friends with Bobby the Brain Heenan. Joe, you must have heard of him. The late Bobby. Of course. I'll tell you a good, forget everything else I'm doing. See, so Bobby the Brain was the tag team champion. They were in Denver. I got to know him, and, and his partner was a guy who played the, the defensive end at Oklahoma and told his knee and became a wrestler. And I was going to go out to uh, dinner with them after a wrestling match in downtown Denver. And they wrestled against each other that night. And the one guy threw Bobby the Brain out of the ring. And a guy stood up with his aluminum chair in the crowd and whacked Bobby the Brain over the head and just burst his forehead. He had those vessels that you Blood, blood capsules. So he already had fake blood on his forehead. Now he's got a cut. It's just wide open. And they, the cops carried the guy away. 
after it's over, I'd go back and the two of them are smoking cigarettes. And Bobby says, I got to go to the hospital. He said, I've never been hurt this bad in the ring. And they're looking at it and said, I got to go get, you know, 15 stitches. Damn it. And he's just cursing. Her. They bring in the guy who hit him over the head, got him handcuffed. They put him up against a concrete wall with the handcuffs. And Bobby Brain goes over and goes, what the heck? And he's screaming at the guy. And he goes to hit the guy. And the guy ducks. And Bobby the Brain hits the concrete and breaks his hand. And he said, get me out of here before I kill myself. So he goes to the hospital. The other wrestler and I go to the hospital and meet him. And uh, we're going to go to dinner. Now, I'm walking down the street with Bobby the Brain. Now, it's a, what are you going to do with this story? He said, I hope I become an announcer, which he did. He became a famous wrestling announcer. And he said, and I was up in Breckenridge uh, today uh, buying some condos. I, I'm going to own some condos in the mountains in the ski area here. And as he's telling me the story, a kid comes up, like eight or nine years old, and says, Mr. Brain, Mr. Brain, would you give me an autograph? And he takes it out of the kid's hand, the piece of paper, and he tears up the piece of paper and spits at the kid. Get out of here, kid. Here we go up. So he said, so I've got these five condoms, and I'm thinking if I can then make it. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Bobby, Bobby, a kid just asked you for your autograph, and you spit on him. <laughs> what was that all about? He said, if I'd have given him that autograph, he'd have lost it tomorrow. When he's 40 years old, he'll remember the night Bobby the Brain spit on him. <laughs> and it actually made sense in that weird kind of way. And I love being around wrestlers. And when I was a kid, when I was a young reporter, the the, the uh, outdoors editor covered wrestling. We, Memphis, it was important. And he came to me and said, you want to earn some money, kid? And I said, sure, yeah. Uh, cover wrestling while I'm on vacation. And I said, oh, really? Good, I'm going to cover it. He said, what that involves is, is they'll send you the schedule. And I said, okay. And on the schedule, below the schedule, will be the results and the times and how they win the race, won the match. So you write on for Saturday on the matches coming up, and then you write the results. And I said, but they don't wrestle for Monday night. Turn it in at the same time. You turn. So I wrote two stories a week. I'd write the schedule, the results before they fought, before they had the wrestling matches. And so I made $20. And I thought, if I could just get somebody to have gambling or wrestling and call them and say, I bet this happens and this happens and this happens. And I took my daughter to see uh, one of the... Uh, it was a period of time where the most famous wrestler was always said, Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, did the joke. So he was, he was wrestling. I introduced him to my daughter, who was like eight or nine years old. And he looks at you, Oh, yeah. He goes into his routine. She starts crying and he puts his arm around her and he talks in normal voice and says, I'm sorry, Shannon. So I got a kick. It's wrestling is a part of my life. That, that goes somewhat unknown. Uh, Woody, you know, sports betting on uh, 
And Russ's like, it's just to be coming soon. That's what Nick Khan's trying to do. But, I mean, you grew up with Elvis, friends with Dr. J, Bobby the Brain, Heenan, Macho Man. You were just pulling out all the all the names here. It's unbelievable. Nick Khan was my agent. Oh, so you, you along with the Adnan Burke and all those other greats, Nick, Con- Nick Khan's taking over. Nick Khan is going to take over the new uh, Endeavor. He's going to run UFC and WWE. That's my prediction. That represented the Eagles, and he kind of concentrated on the Eagles. And he said, "I got a guy that works with me. I'll turn you over to him." And so Nick Khan uh, negotiated a lot of contracts with, with ESPN for me. And then he said, "I'm I'm getting out of it, trying to get somebody else." But he said, "I'm getting out of it." And then the next time I actually see Nick Khan, I like, he's head of WWE. <laughs> well, that's a switch, but that made sense. Of, uh, these guys that are agents. Uh, yeah, the Los Angeles Lakers have an agent for legal Yeah. Yeah. Matt's hired Brody Van Wagenen. You know, that happens. ESPN used to do have us, really, the reason why I got involved with ESPN, they called me one day and said, uh, we're doing a show. They had a network, ESPN Classic. Do you remember yeah. that network? Of course. Yeah. And they had a show that was on ES, ESPN Century. And they would do 30-minute shows on athletes. And they called me and they said, we're doing this show. This is before I was with them. Just talking about the luck kind of thing. Uh, we're going to do a show on John Elway. And we're going to do shows. And we, we'd like to, we'll pay you 250 bucks. You could come to this hotel room. The show is called ESPN Century. And it'll look like an office or an English manor kind of place. And uh, you just tell us some stories. Kind of like, like I'm doing with you right now. So I went into this uh, hotel ball and, and they had a crew there. And I thought I was going to be asked about five athletes. They asked me for about 100 athletes. They go, Ted Williams, tell us a story. And I go, not that old. Uh, Joe Montana, I tell a Joe Montana story. Uh, the secretary, uh, so I'm not, uh, I, I didn't know the secretary person. So I did like six hours of just telling stories about athletes. And they called me back about a month later and they said, we want you to do that again. I said, I ain't doing it for two fifty. I said, that that was work. That was really work. So they gave me like $2,000. And uh, this included people like Larry Brown, who used to coach the New York Knicks and you know, every other team in the world. And uh, then they called me and said, we're going to start this show called Around the Horn. And that's kind of, they liked that I was funny and they liked that I actually had a history of knowing stuff. And uh, that's kind of how that all started. They said, we're going to start the show and we'd like for you to be, uh, you're the first guy we're hiring. And so I met with them at the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay where the most famous uh, national anthem, Zimmerman would have told you that, the most famous national anthem of all time was was sung by a great female singer. So that's kind of all around because I was available. I I I, I actually probably, I'm sure I've used the blackboard, but at this point I don't know whether folks I'll go, that seems familiar. I must be stealing everything. I'm stealing them from myself. <laughs> I, I, I am not recycling anything. The but best I, ability is availability. And that's my best ability is availability. So with with, ES, with ESPN though, I mean, basically the the way the origin story goes, kind of like 
you know, part of the interruption yeah. came along as a, you know, based off Mike and the Mad Dog. Then you guys came around the horn as the, the follow-up show. But I think you kind of revolutionized the programming of ESPN now when you went to the mornings. You were doing, you know, cold pizza first and 10 with Jay Crawford and Skip Bayless, which led to first take. So how much of Skip and Stephen A's success do they owe to you? Uh, Stephen A was around. He actually got fired uh, yeah. right after we were working together. It, it, the the uh, management team at that time didn't much like it. He did a nighttime show that was kind of a uh, David Letterman kind of show. I went on it. Uh, it was in Times Square, and his contract ran out, and they didn't renew it. And he was you know, doing local, uh, local radio programming in New York and and they brought him back to ESPN. Uh, I in terms of I hadn't thought that's a good question. I hadn't, I haven't thought I don't think I had any effect on ESPN uh, on, on Stephen A. Smith. I think I was a good counter argument to Skip Bayless. Because I, I promise you, all the grief he gets, he's serious. He's not making up that he hates LeBron. He's he's the most serious person I've ever been around in my life. He, he At that time, when we were doing cold pizza, he would drink like 14 uh, Red Bulls during the show. I would talk to people. We had a little studio audience in the New York hotel. I talked to people in Elvis. And he would go back to his room and he'd study a yellow legal pad and add to it. And he'd get pissed at me all the time because he'd have a list of 10 things to get into a subject. And I had a I had a little card and I'd have one word on it, you know, Mets, your trap. And he'd have 10 things. And we'd finish the segment and he'd say, I didn't get to all my 10. I said, I didn't even get to do my one. <laughs> what are you talking about? And so it was not a great relationship uh, but I think that show he wouldn't have been on that show without I mean if I'd have had my way uh, but when we did the audition together it did work because we were opposites and the show did work because and they thought so much of it they repackaged it all day long and put it in you know first and ten and then it was uh, it was called to, and they take segments out of it and put it. We were on like three, four times a day. That's why I thought, boy, I was over, over, uh, overexposed on TV. Like, like on all the time. And as soon as I finished uh, Cold Pizza, I had to work on Around the Horn, and, and I had to come up with different arguments for the same subjects because that's all you're doing is you're repackaging. It's sort of like people, the most beloved, I think, sports show is is the NBA show on on uh, TNT, with Charles Barkley because of Barkley uh, and Shaquille, and they're repackaging stuff all the time. They have to repackage, you know, at, at halftime and afterwards. That's what a lot of sports broadcast. You're repackaging it, and the idea is to come up with because Mina Kimes, for instance 
was on with Levitard. She was on NFL Today or whatever. She has to discuss the same job subjects three times. So you've got to be able to, to show, you know, I may not be any good, but I can repackage stuff and come from a different direction with it. That's important. When you are doing your podcast and you got somebody on the show, you've got to repackage whatever you might have asked the previous guy. You might want to ask the same subject about wrestling, but you better come up at a, you know, the people are going to go, that's the same question he asked the guy week before. You have to come up with a, a, a different angle all the time. It's sort of like in basketball, you've got to create a new lane. You've got to create a new lane and a new angle to come in from. So uh, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, they, they achieved whatever they achieved. All right. Well, we'll, we'll say it. Uh... I'll say it for you. We think Skip owes a lot too. My favorite first take episode was the height of Tebow mania. They came out to Denver. You were on the show. That was a big surprise. You guys kind of, uh, you looked like you were, uh, he was happy to see him, but I guess that was all just smoke and mirrors. Uh, he says, he's been in magazine articles because I mean, he's, he's certainly become richer and more famous than me. I once said to my daughter, who's an adult and very successful, I said, if I stayed with Skip, I'd be making you know, $15 million a year and we'd be on Fox. And she said, no, one of you would have killed the other one. My daughter's actually smarter than I am. <laughs> and that's right. We wouldn't have, it wouldn't have lasted because we would have, it, you always wonder how the Beatles woke up. I'm not comparing us to the Beatles, but you wonder, how could John and Paul, it happens all the time. There are people on television, on ESPN, that hate each other, and, and they work together. Uh, it wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't, I didn't want to go back, I didn't want to go to uh, Connecticut. They were moving the show to Connecticut, and that's yeah. brilliant, and I quit, and that uh, I didn't buy in. My contract was for New York. When they moved it to Bristol, I went, I'm not doing that. And then my contract was up and they were and so we agreed that I'd continue to do Ron Horn and I'd come back to Denver. But uh uh Skip went and he lived in a hotel for years in in a Marriott and he'd go to New York on the weekend. Uh we never came to blows except that one time, but uh I, I think that show worked for that time period and that time. And then it worked with the two of them together, Stephen A. Smith and uh, Skip. And they like each other. They really like each other. But I can tell you, uh, they're both bullshit artists. So I guess I've put myself in that class too. <laughs> Well, in order for TV to work, there needs to be a certain dynamic, right? And there needs to be friction. So going back to what you were saying at the beginning, uh, your we'll say your your relationship with Jay Mariotti, and again, Nick mentioned this before too, we've had Jay on a couple of times with us. Uh, he's always treated us really, really well. But major reason why I think Around the Horn lasted so long in those initial early years is because you and Jay and the dynamic that you, you guys had, which evidently based on what you were saying before, didn't start out great, but got a little bit better over time. Um, that's ultimately why I think the show worked through those first couple of years. And you're not totally unfamiliar to podcasts, right? 
you had uh, you did the unmuted podcast with Jay there for a period of time. So yeah, not not very long, not, not very long to be honest with you. That was that that relationship. I'm not talking about a love relationship. Couldn't be reenacted. It could not come. It couldn't come back. Jay had gone off in a totally different world. That's not a negative. He'd gone off in a totally different world. I'd gone into a different direction. And even though it was my idea, and I kind of wanted to uh, uh, bring his career back, I don't know any other way to put it, because he was kind of on the shelf, or still is to an extent. And I, I was trying to uh, trying to help him, and it didn't work. Yeah, I interrupted your question. No, 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 it's, 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 it's never all going to work. So I also wanted to ask you uh, about the craziest things. Now, you've pitched a lot of spooky stories, always looking at the angle that nobody has ever looked at previously, and that has helped uh, your career immensely. Um, but what are some of the other notable crazy stories uh, that you've got to work on and research for and uh, do through the years? Oh. Thing about that before I answer that is we started the show with a really serious solemn kind of story about me going out to fresh kills where they took uh, all of the fresh kills if you will and I always wondered what why that why you'd name a dump fresh kills that didn't I assume it had something to do with birds or something but a lot of people at the Denver Post got very upset that the Denver Post sent me to New York their feeling was you're taking this sports writer who writes funny and you're sending him to, well, I'd cover civil rights and the assassination of Dr. King in the South. Uh, I went on peace marches as a reporter. Uh, and I covered Columbine, which was the most famous first of the school killing, covered the Columbine, uh, the, the Aurora shootings reader. I considered myself a a serious journalist, or I wanted to be Mike Royko out of Chicago. There, there, there have been famous columnists in New York City that that I kind of patterned what I wanted to be like. I wanted to be like Jim Murray, the the, the sports writer, sports columnist, Red Smith, and I had a Kurt Vonnegut. And I, you know, you're talking about. I got to know Kurt Vonnegut towards the end of his life, and Kurt Vonnegut was my idol. If you were to read anybody read my writing, you'll see that I'm basically doing, I'm a cover, Kurt Vonnegut cover band. <laughs> I think it's a good way to put me, is that I thought he was the greatest American author of all. Uh, so I think that that influenced me so much, but I was a serious journalist. I mean, when I went to cover 9-11, I didn't do plenty of blackboards. Uh, you can go back, anybody can go back and look at the stories I did out of New York uh, at, at 9-11. But I think that's what kept me, I'm 70, how old am I? I'm 76. I, what? I think that my phone is answering how old I am. <laughs> <You're just listening. laughs> if, I, if I ever want to impress anybody, I, I go on and say, uh, I can't say it very loud, because I'll say, uh, 
to Amazon. Uh, do you know who Woody Page is? <laughs> it gets you know, my bio. <laughs> and people go, really? Alexa knows that? <laughs> That's my idea of a bad joke at a party. The uh, some I've told you some of the crazy stuff, but I flew with the uh, Blue Angels, and that, and I actually flew the plane for a while, and I threw up all over the cockpit and thought I was going to die. That was kind of a crazy thing. Uh, and when the Olympics were, in, I'll give you one that, that actually was copied by, I think, 20 guys. In Australia, I decided during the Olympics in Australia, I wanted to go to the Outback. And so I found found a, a travel agent that, that, that worked with the Olympic Committee that found me two flights to get to the Outback, out of the middle of nowhere. Went out there, rented a car, asked where I could go to where they made the Mad Max movie. Did you ever see the Mad Max movie? And I said, I want to go there. I went out and said, is there a bar out there? And said, yeah, it's about 150 miles or something. So I, I'm in the middle of Australia, away from the Olympics. I'm at a, I get to a bar that's nowhere. I mean, it, it is. And that's where, if you see the original uh, Mad Max movie, particularly number, the second one, they have a truck, trucks racing, and there's an all the trucks. That was right where I was. And I said to the bar people, uh, where can I find uh, kangaroos? Well, the rangers right down the road here. Went to the ranger, big short sword. I said, where are kangaroos? Uh, they come out uh, at dusk right over at that hill. Here's a loaf of bread. Go over there, stand on the hill. The, the kangaroos will come and you feed them with the bread. I went, that sounds simple. So when I went and stood on the hill, I had the bread. At dusk, there's like a thousand kangaroos coming from all directions. This is like out of a, a novel out of the, the Boer War or something. And they surround me and they're big reds and they're uh, the female uh, uh, kangaroos with babies in their pouches and stuff. They're surrounding me. And I'm throwing bread and I'm backing toward the car, which is about 100 yards away. And I'm backing. And I think, I'm going to die. This is like the birds. This is how I think move. I run and I'm throwing the bread. And I get in the car and they're jumping on the car. And I think they're going to break the windshield and everything. The ranger had told me, I thought the ranger was there to protect the kangaroos. His job was to kill kangaroos. And he killed 68 that day, he told me later. You think of a ranger in this in this country, a ranger is protecting the forest. He's protecting the bears. He's not going out shooting bears. <laughs> That's what I thought they would do. And kangaroos are rats, you know. So I go back to the ranger station and I said, and he's laughing. He is laughing his ass off. And he said, "Do you see kangaroos?" I said, "You're a dick." <laughs> and you knew that. Why didn't you give me three loaves of bread or something, or or tell me that there was going to be hundreds, not Five, and he said, "You need to find out for yourself." And so, in that bar, I go back to the bar, and I watch the Olympics. And the 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 the, the TV set is black and white. Up in the corner, 
and it's about 14 inches. And I'm watching, I've been sent to the Olympics to cover the Olympics. I am in a, a town called Broken Wheel, the Broken Spoke or something, in a bar, there's three of us in the bar, looking at it on a white, on a black and white TV that's 14 inches, covering the Olympics and writing about kangaroos. Is that a guy called me? I had a cell phone that you could call from anywhere. I, I, I rented it and the phone rang and I went, who's calling me? It was my best friend in Colorado and he said, so what event? Are you at the track and field? Are you, uh, at the basketball? I said, I'm in a bar in the outback. I just was surrounded by a couple hundred kangaroos. And he said, no, really. Where are you? Are you, uh, if there's a great meet tonight, then you know, I said, and nobody would believe that I was down under. I mean, way down. Under. I was I was probably two thousand miles away from the Olympics. And so, uh, I'll tell you the other one is I try to pick out something different every day. Uh, and I went. I was one of only probably twenty sports riders that covered the greatest uh, Olympic wrestler of all time. He was Cuban. He never lost a match. He never lost a point in a match. And he went up against an American who was a kid. And it was the greatest singular upset in the history of the Olympics. And I looked around and I thought, nobody else is here. <laughs> he gave me, this is the biggest. I'm writing a book and the title is, I wouldn't believe this shit either. Because you guys are going to say, I don't believe that shit that he said. I Okay, got a one-on-one -on -one interview with a guy just pick up, pick, pulled off the biggest upset in Olympic history against the greatest Olympic wrestler who had never, not only never lost, never allowed a point in the deal. And I went back to uh, uh, went back to Olympic headquarters, and we had other people because Denver has the Olympic Center here. We had five people at the Olympics. And this guy called me and he said, I'm going to cover that. Uh, I'm going to cover the wrestling thing. I'm going to do a story. I'm going to try and find the." I said, I was there. I think I can do it. And he said, no, that's my story. I can cover wrestling. I, said, I think I, I think I got that story. Uh, I said, I was there. He said, what were you doing there? And I said, I don't know. I got to go there. So that's, those are a couple of, I mean, I, 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 I always do stuff and say, why are you doing this? What? You know, I'm, I'm now 76 to read my brother. It, it's time to not do shit. You know, it's time to do this shit. Yeah. Not, not, it's time to do that shit. My shit's okay. Got it. I'm not making any sense to you guys. Doing around the horde is okay. Yes. Keep doing it. We need you on there. Um, is okay. Doing shit where I fly a jet airplane, uh, that's a nim. Yeah, it's, it was either an F four or F sixteen, A four, A four. It was an A four. Uh, that's not a good idea. Well, I think the kangaroo stories is surreal, and that book sounds incredible. Joe, read that in one sitting. But 
this has been fantastic. Our last question here, our signature question, what in your life or your career has been your, you know, right moment. So what I mean by that is a time or place where you wanted to pursue something, you asked somebody for advice, or maybe you were trying to persuade an editor. They said no. And you were like, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And ultimately you will see why it is that I'm right. I don't know that that's ever uh, happened. Uh, they've never not. Okay. This is a good way to end the show. There was a period of time in this country where uh, sports pages had a lot of advertising and there would be breast enhancement ads on sports pages. I don't know why. They came out with penis enlargement. I wouldn't believe this shit. Came up with penis enlargement. And it was next to my column in Denver Post. And I thought, how does that work? I mean, we could kind of figure out what breast enhancement were. How, how do you... So I made a res I made an appointment at the doctor's office, to, and I was going to do it under a fake name, but I assumed they were going to ask me for the insurance, and I went ah with it. And so when I went in, the doctor started explaining it to me that it requires injections of fat from your butt into your penis. You can cut this part of the show off if you want to, and it requires. Uh, the, the penis can be enlarged uh, length and as he told me uh, the women like circumference <laughs> you, you're not believing so I uh, he showed me pictures of family and he said here's a good one for you and I said, well, I kind of like this one. Does it come in a white? <laughs> you asked about this. <laughs> and I <laughs> and I said, that one looks like he's wearing a Boy Scout cap. <laughs> it, was, it was the weirdest. So he said, are you ready to do this? Because it required me flying to Houston. And no, no, I let me think about it. That's what to do when you walk out of a store. Let me think about it. So I went back and I wrote a story. It was Christmas time. I wrote a column and I thought, for the man who has almost everything, here's a good Christmas gift. And I thought, the ad is right there next to me. So, I mean, I, I wasn't using language that you could put in a newspaper. And it was Christmas. I said, you know, here's something you consider to get the man in your life better. I don't know how to about it. I got a call that night, I think it was Christmas Eve, from the publisher of the paper saying, we can't put that, we're not putting that in the paper. That's, that's not going to the paper. You put that ad in the paper. It's the only time in my 60 years away from somebody said, we're not putting that in the paper. But along comes a new magazine in Denver that's a monthly or a week, a monthly magazine. Yeah, City Magazine, like New York Magazine, like every city has. That guy called me and he said, I can't afford you, but I'd love for you to write 
a story in our first magazine to help us get off the ground. And I and I kind of knew the guy and I said, I got something. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, how would you like a story of penis in Larson? <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, I'll send it to you. He said, I can't pay you much. I said, you don't have to pay me anything. Just run it. He called me and said, we want to put you on the cover. See, the story gets good. You can you can find this if you want. But what? What are you going to put me on the cover for? We're going to put you in a hot tub with uh, two women. And they'll be holding a yardstick. <laughs> I went, okay. Just talk about doing crazy things. I went, yeah, sure. Why not? So I did. There was a photo shoot. The magazine comes out, me on the cover, story in there, and I get a call from the publisher. This is well, maybe six or eight months later, and he just for me. I knew it, and I said, "Once you didn't run it, it was my property. <laughs> you couldn't do that to me. You can, can't do that to me." I don't think to this day, and I still know him well, I think if we picked up the phone and you interviewed him and you said, what is the worst thing? What do you think it would have done? I got an answer for that. So that's the only time. So that kind of answers three or four questions about the craziest thing you've ever done. I thought that was a good idea. That was an unusual idea. Nobody's ever written that. Oh, the one I did in Australia, though, I just want to tell you, that after I went to the Outback and did that piece, every columnist from the United States copied that. They went out there. There were a bunch of guys that went out there. Somewhere in, in Australia, they went to either uh, see kangaroos or you know go to where Mad Men movies and stuff. So that kind of showed me uh, that some of those ideas could be you know, unique. And, and different. So, anyway, yeah, that was that last one I told you about was unique. Uh, yeah, and you can find it if you actually. I think you can actually. That that was nineteen eh, late eighties, I think. You could probably find that story if you want to read it. It's funny. It's funny as hell. It's a lot funnier in the magazine than it would have been in the newspaper. Guys, yep, you've, yep. you've been great. I'm go look for it. <laughs> I think that's probably more than you want to ask about, about this. You know, it, it, did I ever get any advice? Yes. I went to a seminar when I was in high school to get away from school. I knew I, I knew in the second grade I was going to be a, a writer. Don't ask me why. My family were all cotton plantation workers in Mississippi. And uh, so I knew in high school. And uh, I asked a, a sports writer at this seminar that the commercial appeal, which I eventually worked for, uh, what, what's the best advice he could give me? And he said, two, one, uh, take a typing course. And two, don't get into journalism. <laughs> and I always remember. And so I left and I went, that's my advice. So I was the only man, only male student in the typing class. I had taught myself how to type, but not very well. 
I was the only, which was a, he was right about that. That was great. I got several dates because I was the only guy in the typing class. They were kind of stuck with me and they knew I could type. And they could, that was kind of impressive to some women. And the other thing is I didn't pay attention to him. I, I decided I was going to get into journalism and I couldn't dream of television. I mean, I, I didn't think about television and I didn't think about radio or certainly podcast or anything else. And I, I still think that's the most important aspect of our conversation today of people that are out there is that think of something that hasn't, but who thought, who invented the podcast? We know it wasn't Al Gore. He invented the internet. Uh, who invented the podcast? I don't know. Do you have any idea? I mean, who's the father of your podcast? I'd find that out if I were you. But I would, uh, I would maybe, if, if I were 22 and, and just kind of starting out this business again, I'd come up with, I'd try to come up with something that hasn't been done before. I've done that once in my life. I, I like to play golf. I got two of my friends. One of them was an engineer. And I said, we need to come up with an invention that when you point this gun at the flagstick, it tells you how far away you are. And they went, oh, that's a good idea. And we came up with uh, a, a yardage gun. And it wasn't high tech, but it would bounce off the, you'd have to have a special flag that it would have a loom. And we went to the PGA, which is in New Jersey, PGA's home office is in New Jersey. We went to uh, the USGA. Maybe that's one in New Jersey. They said, that will never be allowed in golf. I said, what about for recreational players? You know, maybe pros. Oh, no. Uh, we'll send out, if you put that out, we'll send out messages to all the country clubs all over the country that that's a, a legal aid. Well, guess what? One of the biggest things in golf is the yardage. That was my chance to be somebody. So, I, instead of that, I end up on your fucking podcast. <laughs> well, it's a good consolation prize. The money's not here. We're not paying you like Chris Russo gets paid 100000 for our first take episode. But we've appreciated the time, Woody. And I, 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 Thanks for reaching out to me, Dick. And it's a pleasure to meet you, Joe. And thank you for putting me on. You'll go away from him and go, boy, that was a wild task. <laughs> it was it was a joy. And next time you're doing a Broncos game in New Jersey, we'll have to get together and meet up. And maybe you can go visit that famous mobster place. You, uh... Yeah, let me let me end on that. That's funny. So I'm at the Jets. Uh, the Broncos played the Jets like three years ago. And after the game, I'm going to go into a little lizard to go to the, the, the restaurant that I that I like. And the Yankees were playing in. The, if you go back and look up, Yankees were playing in the playoffs. So it's three, four years ago. After uh, after the game out there, I'm going to get an Uber, and nobody picked me up. I can't get a cab. I can't get anything. I'm in the empty stadium out yeah. there, nowhere. And a golf cart comes over, and there's five guys on this golf cart, and they start screaming, "Hey, bang, hey, bang!" And they said, "We work for the Jets, and." Uh, we're supposed to go around and make sure everything is done. Can we take you somewhere? I said, take me somewhere where I can get a, would you take me somewhere where I can get the ride back into to New York? 
they said, oh, we'll give you a ride back in New York. So we went and got in their car, and they were saying, oh, what do you think is in their car? And, everything. and I said, well, thank you. And then something I'm going to the little And so we all rode together. And I'm getting out of the car, and they said, you're not at all like you are on TV. We could barely hear you. You didn't scream and holler. I said, don't tell anybody my secret that I don't scream and holler. And they said, wow, this is the greatest days of the life we rode in the car <laughs> So that's next time I will ride with the two of you out to the stadium. Perfect. Looking forward to it. So that's going to do it here for this amazing episode of You Know I'm Right for the often imitated, never duplicated, our special guest, Woody Page, my coach, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know Right. <laughs>